Acts 18. What's that? You're still standing. For those that don't know, um, you know, we have two services out here. We have the 830 and we have the 10. And as we get ready to start the 10, a lot of you may not know, Marv has a tendency to hold up the 830. He's a real distraction at the 830. And now he's trying at the 10 to be an issue again, too. So in the name of Jesus, we rebuke you. So <laughs> I shouldn't say that. That really wasn't funny. So as that's coming out of the mouth, it's like, don't, don't say that. But we love you, Marv. So Acts 18, we're going to finish up Acts 18 today, Lord willing, time willing, let's pray. And as we get going into this, Heavenly Father, it's good to be here. Um, and Lord, I just, I keep thinking about the last song and those words, what amazing words they were. Thank you for abiding with us. Thank you for abiding with the families here, the families in this community. Thank you for being a God of comfort, because that is what you are. And we do thank you and we praise you for that in your name. Amen. Acts 18. Now, if you haven't been with us here, we're in Paul's second missionary journey. And if that interests you, if you have a Bible with you, probably in the back you have a map. And on that map probably has a color-coded system of four missionary journeys of Paul. We're going to finish his second missionary journey today, and we're going to begin his third missionary journey today. So we have been going through the different towns and areas that he'd been in. He just got done being in Corinth, and he was there for quite some time, about a year and a half. And so now he's moving on, getting back to Antioch, where he started his missionary journey, and this is where he's going to finish up. So we have a couple main points that we're going to talk about here with Paul, but a lot of little sub-points. And I really enjoyed this message. I was really blessed by this, and I hope you guys are as well, too. God's word is good, and I hope this blesses you. So Acts 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. And I came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. A lot of little points before we get to the big points there. We're reminded again of Priscilla and Aquila in verse 18. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you, grab a copy of the CD, listen to it online. We talked in detail about Priscilla and Aquila. Absolutely love Priscilla and Aquila. Every time they're mentioned in the Bible, they're mentioned together as a group, as a husband and wife team. They are the great example of marriage in the Bible, of what a marriage looks like, ministering for the Lord, discipling for the Lord, serving for the Lord. And we spent a lot of time talking about them last week. So if you weren't with us, I encourage you to grab a copy of that. What else do we see going on here? So he's got Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he does the same thing he does every time in verse 19. He goes to the town, finds a synagogue, and preaches. Now, the synagogue would have been the place where the Jewish men would meet. Now, please remember the difference between temple and synagogue. There is one temple that is in Jerusalem where the sacrifices were made. But the Jews had set up these synagogues all over the area for the people that couldn't get to the temple. And so if you had enough Jewish men, you would have a synagogue where there'd be a time of prayer and there'd be a reading of the Bible. They wouldn't call it the Bible. We would call it the Old Testament. Paul would go, and at these readings, they would open it up to traveling people. If you have anything you'd like to say, and Paul would speak, and next thing you know, he's talking to them about Christ. This is what he's done each time he goes to a town. And here's our word again in verse 19. Reasoned with the Jews. This is the fourth message in a row that that word has popped up. That word literally means dialogued with them. He got out there and he talked to them. 
I cannot stress to you enough the importance of starting up conversations with people to see where the Lord takes it, dialogue with them, and just pray for God to open a door. Anytime I'm talking to someone, I'm just in the back of my mind saying, Lord, open a door. When God opens a door, I want to dialogue with them. I want to talk to them about this. I want to show them who Jesus Christ is. Jump back to Acts 17. Let's just remind ourselves of this. Acts 17, 2 and 3. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned, there's our word, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. If you remember from a few weeks ago, that's what we're supposed to do. We reason with them, we explain, we demonstrate, we tell them what the scripture says, we present to them Jesus Christ, and guess what happens? Verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Verse 5, some were not persuaded. You're going to throw seeds out there. You don't know which ones are going to grow, but you just keep persuading. You keep encouraging. You keep explaining, demonstrating, and dialoguing, reasoning. You know, Natalie made some amazing point when she was up there. The things you love about is what you talk about. And if we really understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, that is what we want to talk about. And we just pray for the Lord to open a door. So a couple other quick things here before we get to our main point is this idea of staying, verse 21. I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. We're going to get to that point of uh, God willing, but Ephesus is where he's going to spend a lot of his time here in the next couple chapters, years actually, and this is where you get the book of Ephesians from to the church at Ephesus. So just a couple little points there as we kind of move on. Now, The main things, those are mostly review. You have to look at verse 18. It says, And Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and he had his hair cut off as Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, that that should grab our attention right there. And he kind of talks about it in verse 21 a little bit. I have to keep this coming feast. Now, what type of vow is he taking? What type of feast is he doing? This is Paul. If you've ever read Paul, this guy is grace upon grace. This is the guy that's constantly telling us in the book of Galatians, you don't need to go back to the law. It's Jesus Christ alone. It's by Christ everything. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. And so now all of a sudden he's taking a vow. He's going to feasts and festivals. He's not backsliding. What is he doing? Well, I think we need to talk about what this vow is. So let's talk about this. Can you go with me to Numbers chapter 6, please? Numbers chapter 6. Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 6. This vow that he takes sure looks like it's something called a Nazarite vow. Now, there's other people in the Bible that do this Nazarite vow. Samson had a Nazarite vow. If you go study that out, that's in Judges 13. Uh, it looks like John the Baptist took some type of Nazareth vow in Luke 1. And it could be a, Samuel did as well, too. And that's in 1 Samuel 1. We know Samson did for sure. It sure looks like John the Baptist did. It sure looked like Samuel did. And it looks like this is what Paul is doing. So let's talk about what this Nazarite vow is. Number 6, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering and takes the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. 
He should drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brothers or his sister, when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. And at the end of this vow, verse 13, Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. Now anytime you read the Old Testament, you read things like this, always look for Jesus. If you just read it as what it's saying, you're going to walk away saying Numbers is the most boring book in the Bible. Jesus is in there. We have to look for it. What are we trying to really symbolize here? And when you do that, the Old Testament all of a sudden becomes this amazing book that you're reading saying, okay, Lord, I want to see you in it. Jesus said, the whole book is written about me. So when I go back and read about burnt offerings and sin offerings in the temple, I'm really reading about Jesus. Now, it's kind of obvious to see some stuff here, verses 13 and 14, especially 14. You're sacrificing a lamb at the end of this type of offering. Great picture of Christ being the lamb that died for our sins. But we need to go back to the beginning. Verse 2. When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. Now, if you were reading this in the Hebrew, you would notice a couple words. First off, you'd see separate right there. This is a vow of separation. We'll get to that. Verse 2. He's a Nazarite. Nazarite vow. That word literally in Hebrew means to separate. Okay? So, separate, separate. This whole vow is showing a separation from the world. Keep that in the back of your mind. How are you separating from the world? Well, what do we got here? First off, it can be for man or woman in verse 2. And note that this is completely, utterly voluntary. There's no obligation to do this. This is not like other offerings where God says you have to. This is a completely voluntary thing that you choose to separate and do all this. What does it actually look like? So male or females can do it. Verse 4, there's a specific time frame that you set. You set the time of your separation. No one's forcing you to do anything. And you have to watch what you drink. You can't drink alcohol, verse 3. And you can't drink grape juice, verse 3. And nor can you have grapes or nor you can have raisins. You're not even allowed to, in verse 4, have the seed or the skin or the seeds of anything of a raisin. You stay completely away from all those, the grapes, the raisins, everything. Verse 5, you don't cut your hair. Sounds like you shave your head and then you let your hair grow. And then in verse 7, you can't be around any death in any way whatsoever. Those are the three things. And then when the sacrifice is over, you offer a lamb and you move on. So what in the world does this mean and represent? Well, let's talk about this for a second. God has called us to separate ourselves from the world. This is an ongoing theme. In fact, the Bible says that we are supposed to be a peculiar people. We're foreigners, we're strangers. I think so often as Christians, we try so hard, and I think a lot of it is subconscious, to fit in. We're never going to fit in. Never. Our whole moral standard is completely different than the way the world is. If you're out here raising kids, you're going to raise your kids completely different from the world. You're going to watch different things, enjoy different things, do different things. We're a peculiar, strange people according to the world. And what this vow represents is you separating yourself from that world. And it's going to be difficult to do. And it's going to sound legalistic. 
I mean, verse 3, okay, I can get the whole no drinking alcohol thing. All righty, we can make a case for that. But grape juice? Okay, now all of a sudden we're taking, okay, now not only grape juice, I can't have a grape. I can't have a raisin. And, and I can't have the seed, skin. I have to shave my head and let my hair grow. And I also can't be near any death. Now, can you imagine, put yourself in position 4,000 years ago. When Moses is explaining this to the, the nation of Israel. And so he gets to this Nazarite vow and he's reading through this. And he's saying, okay, no alcohol, no grape juice, no fresh grapes, no raisins, no seed, no skin. Shave your head, let your hair grow. Don't go near death. And at the end, sacrifice a lamb. I bet you there was some good Jew that raised his hand and said, said Moses, real quick follow-up question. Moses said, sure. Do I have to do this, Moses? No, no, this is completely voluntary. You don't have to do it. And they would all breathe a sigh of relief and never think about it again. It's not required. This is completely voluntary. Same thing happens spiritually. Do you realize how little is actually required of you as a Christian? I mean, Jesus took care of everything on the cross for you. That's why he said it is finished. He gives you the Holy Spirit. I don't have to go out and earn it. He opens the door of salvation to me in heaven. I don't have to earn it. He leads me. He guides me. He empowers me. He does everything. So what do I have to do? Nothing. Guess what? You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the word. You don't have to come to church. For you that waited on that train for 20 minutes, you don't have to be here today. You don't. You choose to. You have separated yourself from the world and you choose to do this voluntarily because you desire to grow deeper in the Lord. And what these separation things examine us and look at us, and it reveals to us it is a separation from the world. What about the whole grape vines, grape seed skin? Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not be drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. You choose what's going to guide and direct you in life. Is it going to be the pleasures and the things of this world, or is it going to be the Holy Spirit? See, that separating from the alcohol, separating from the grapes, the vines, the raisins, the seeds, is showing that you are letting go of anything in this world that's going to try to bring you pleasure, and you're going to focus solely on the things of the Lord, and the Lord alone. You may say, well, that's extreme. Alcohol we get. Grape juice, okay, maybe by chance it fermented and we didn't know about it. And so I accidentally, but I'm pretty sure I can tell a fresh grape is not going to be anything inappropriate. Pretty sure I can tell the seed in the skin of a grape is not going to bring me down. You're right. But what happens for some of us is the seed and the skin do bring us down. Let me explain. Let's say that you had an issue with drinking. The Lord saved you out of that. Amen. Maybe you can't walk through the aisle at Walmart with alcohol. You know, it's not there for you. You don't want it. It's the seed in the skin that's going to bring you down. You're going to see the bottle. You're going to see it. It says in the book of Proverbs that we take the wine glass and we swirl it and it's got a color. It's got an attraction. It's got a smell. And Proverbs says don't. Just don't even go there. And people say, well, that's the problem. You're being legalistic. Am I being legalistic or am I being smart and safe? Now, this is a personal choice. Let me stress that again. Personal choice. What happens for you? What is your seed and skin that's going to bring you down? I will just speak for me personally. And let me stress to you again, this is me personally. I have come to the conclusion after 25 years of walking with the Lord, there are certain seeds and skins that are going to take me to raisins and grapes. They're going to take me to grape juice, which is going to take me to the alcohol. I need to stay away from that. What is it? For me, it's boredom. Now, we don't have a satellite or anything. We just have the classic antenna at our house. Now, growing up as a kid, I think we had three or four stations. Now we have like 40 or whatever we can get. And if I am bored and if I sit down in front of that television, I take that remote, what will I do? I will just keep flipping. 
and flipping till I find something that interests me and tantalizes me. That is my seed and skin I need to stay away from. I know that if I get online and I just want to check the weather, if I want to go check some information, I know that there's going to be seeds and skins that are going to grab my attention. I know if I go read an article, and if I get down to the bottom of that article, there's going to be six other articles that are suggested for me. And I know that if I click on one of those other articles, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to take a seed to a skin, to a raisin, to a grape, and I'm going to go down a path that I don't want to go. Now, I'm not telling you guys that you can't watch TV. I'm not telling you guys you can't watch movies, and I'm not telling you guys you can't get online. I'm telling me that I have voluntarily said on certain things like that, i got to be careful. It's going to take me a place I don't want to go. And next thing you know, I'm checking the weather for Northwest Ohio. And then all of a sudden, how did I end up with that website, with those things, those images, those words? I don't need to be there. I don't want to be there. So this is what it's saying. You voluntarily say, I will limit myself, separate myself from certain things. Now, the problem is people see that and say, it's legalistic. No, this is not legalistic. This is voluntarily. Some people are going to sit here and say, well, this is the problem with your Christians. It's a have to. I'm not saying you have to. This is a voluntary Nazarite vow where you choose to separate. What about the other things that they're asking you to do? The haircut. You have to remember back thousands of years ago, it was not common to have the long flowing locks. That's why it's always mentioned about Absalom or Samson in the Bible. Men kept their hair very, very short. If you took a Nazarite vow, you are publicly showing the world, I'm going to do something different. Start out with a shaved head and then I'm going to get real long hair. We're supposed to be different to the world. Now, does that mean you go out there and purposely try to be different? No, just if you live a life for Christ, you're just going to be different. I've run into Christians that try to be different. It's forced, it's pushed, it doesn't work. If you just go out there and live your life according to the Bible, and you raise your family and your marriage and your kids, or just live your life according to the scriptures, you're going to be peculiar and different to this world. We need to understand that. We need to see that. What about the death? That's pretty hard in verse 7. Mother, father, brother, sister. I tell you guys, there's a lot of death in this world. And I'm not even talking physical. I'm just saying things that destroy us spiritually. It kills us spiritually. You know activities. You know actions. You know people that when you're around them, it brings death to you spiritually. And sometimes you need to separate yourself from those activities, from those people, from those conversations, because it is bringing a death to you and it's hurting you spiritually. See, the Nazarite vow is saying, stay away from those little things that are going to become big things later. The Nazarite vow is saying, you're going to publicly be weird, accept that. The Nazarite vow is saying, stay away from that death that's going to bring you down. Now, if you sit here and say, this is the problem, this is this legalism, this is the difficult, please note one more time, it's voluntary. And please note one more time, God made sure you knew it was difficult. Jump back to verse 2. I said there was three points there. It says separate himself. Nazarite means separate. But it says this, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering. Some of your translations say special offering. In the original Hebrew, this word is a tough, tough word. This word is saying that you will energetically separate from all this. You're not pushed to. You don't have to. You choose to. And this is what Christianity is. God will take you as deep as you want to go. If you want to go deep for the Lord, he will take you deep. If you don't, he's not going to push you. But this Nazarite vow is an example and it's a picture of saying, I am so separating. Not to the point I'm not witnessing. Not to the point I'm not ministering. No, but from what this world has to offer me, the pleasures, the sins, the junk, no. 
I've separated myself from that, and I don't want anything to do it. That's what the Nazarite vow looks like, and it's a deep commitment to the Lord. And we see it in the Old Testament, and it looks like this is what Paul was doing as well here in the New Testament. Jump back now, if you will, to Acts 18. I wanted to make mention of verse 21 real quick before we move on. I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. Can you go with me real quick to James 4? God willing. We, th- we say that a lot, don't we? Lord willing, we'll do this. If the Lord leads, we'll do this. Do we really understand what God willing, the Lord leading, means? I, I have seen over the years so many people make huge life decisions. Changing jobs, buying and selling houses, ministry changes, who to date, who to marry, what to do. And they make these huge decisions without ever really stopping and saying, Lord, what's your will for my life? It feels good. This is what I've always wanted. This is what I'm going to do. Or if they're seeking God's will, it's usually kind of a quick little, um, Lord, should I take this job, yes or no, Uh, amen. We don't stop to even listen to what he has to say. To really understand what it means when we say, Lord willing, God willing, we're stopping and saying, I've given that completely over to the Lord, he's going to lead me. You know, we're doing a study right now with a different uh, Bible study of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, Proverbs says. To really understand what it means to fear the Lord. And this is not some type of fear shaking in my boots, but I so respect and revere who God is. Who am I to make any decision on life without seeking him first? See, we start thinking that I have enough wisdom to make this decision. I have enough understanding. I have enough guidance. And the Bible is constantly trying to tell you from Genesis to Revelation, you can't. You've got to seek me. Because then what happens is we take the dream job and we find out it's not the dream job. We take the great house and we find out it's not the great house. We take the relationship and find out he's a bum. Why? Because we didn't really seek the Lord. I mean, we threw it out there. But do we stop and fast and pray and seek? See, look here at James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. I just want to encourage you. If you're here this morning and you got a big life decision, you pray over it, you fast over it, you seek the scriptures. How does this glorify God? How does this take the kingdom further? What is he calling me to do for him? Once again, I see so many people make decisions based on them. This is what we've always wanted. This is what we've always wanted to do. This is our dream house, dream vacation, dream whatever. The Lord sometimes has a different plan. And his plan is going to be what's best. God's way is always best. So I appreciate Paul in verse 21 saying, God willing, I'll return. And he did. And he spends years there. Hey, let's finish up his second missionary journey, verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Second missionary journey, complete. Verse 23, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Verse 23, third missionary journey, beginning. That quickly there in the scriptures, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you will see that. Now, I think it's important to note in verse 23, he's going over to strengthen all the disciples. This is the same thing he said when he got ready to start his second missionary journey. I'm going to go back and see everybody that I saw beforehand because I want to help them. I want to strengthen them. 
Guys, this is what we're called to do as the body of Christ, to strengthen them. It literally means they can lean on us, we can lean on them. But we try so hard to be the solo island Christians. Have you, have you ever seen that? We don't want to open up about what we're going through. We don't want to ask for prayer. We don't want it to be a struggle. We don't want to bother somebody. Or to be quite honest, we don't want to deal with it. You know, over the years, I've had so many conversations with people about Christianity, church. And when I say about coming to church, I'm never trying to push people to come to harvest. You've got to go where the Lord leads you to go. But what I'm saying is being part of the body of Christ, the encouragement, the fellowship. Why don't they come? I've heard a lot of reasons. I've been hurt. I've been hurt by people. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. We're all sinful human fleshly beings and we're going to hurt each other. But the problem is if you let that hurt control you, you're going to walk in a bitterness and an anger. It's too much work to come to church. I've heard that one a lot. I remember one time having a conversation with a guy. And, uh, you know, what time are your church services? Sunday morning, 8.30. Oh, 8.30. I can't do 8.30. That's okay. We have a 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock? I don't know. If you had like a 1 o'clock, I could probably do 1 o'clock. I'm telling you right now, I could have a one o'clock, I could show up at his door, and I could come in and say, I will sit in your living room and teach. You'll still find a reason not to come. If you want to come, you'll come. I remember when, you know, Richard, talking to Richard over the last, whatever, 20 years out here, Richard always used to say to me, if they want to come, they're going to come. Our doors are open at 10. And that's the truth. They want to come, they'll be here. Now, that means, doesn't mean that you don't follow up with people that you haven't seen and make sure they're okay, etc. But if you want to, you want to. It's not a have to. We hope you want to come. Well, why do I want to come? Oh, I've heard lots of reasons. I don't want to be around people. That's one a lot. I just don't want to be around people. I don't get anything out of the messages. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't like the music. I don't like the children's ministry. I don't. I mean, for whatever reason, you're going to find a reason to not want to come, and I get that. One of my favorite stories is I had a guy one time that uh, just disappeared. So contacted him, followed up with some, hey, we've been missing you. It's like, yeah, I know. They always said the same thing. I know I should probably be there. We would love to have you. But you know what I discovered, Pastor? What? I'm waiting for this deep revelation. He goes, do you know that they have teachers on TV every Sunday morning? I said, yeah, they do. And he goes, and they're good. They're good. <laughs> and this is what he said. I'm not making it up. He goes, they're actually a little bit better than you. <laughs> yep. And it's like, yeah, there's a, I have a pastor friend that uses the term blessed subtraction when somebody leads his church. And I get it. I know what he's saying. I said, I get it. They're good, too. And you know what? It's nice and easy. You stay in your warm, comfy clothes. You flip on the TV at 10 o'clock, and it's always nice and done in about 24 minutes. And then you can move on. See, the problem is we're looking at church from the wrong perspective. We're looking at is what do I get out of it? The purpose of church is also to come and minister to people. See, that's the thing is, I always try to tell people going through a difficult time, and I know it's hard, I get it. When you are hurt and crushed, who can you minister to? Because if you just keep focusing on yourself, you're going to start walking in discouragement and depression. We're supposed to come and bless other people and help other people. So maybe we need to come into church and say, you know what? The teaching is going to be good, not because of James, because God's word is just good. And God's word doesn't return void. You know what? The worship's going to be good, not because of the worship team, because it's just it's God, and he deserves my worship, and I just want to praise him. And I'm going to look around at all these people, and I'm not going to sit here and say, well, when no one talks to me, who can I go talk to? I'm not going to sit here and say, well, that person's difficult. Instead, I'm going to say, how can I love my enemies? It's a mindset that we have that we come to worship and minister and serve others. And really what it comes down to is a lot of times we don't like the dirty work of ministry. We want everybody to have all their problems figured out. We don't want any difficulties. We don't want any difficult people. 
and we just want it easy. Dawn and I talk about this a lot. Maybe we're dealing with a difficult person, a difficult situation, and we say, I would love to go back in time, spend one day with Jesus. How did he handle these people? How did Jesus handle the person that would not stop talking about themselves? How did Jesus handle the person that everything they said was just a complaint coming out of their mouth? How did he handle people that were so full of bitterness and anger they couldn't move forward? You know, we get glimpses, we get pictures, we get the scriptures. We can tie together a a picture of it. But people are difficult. And the idea of the Lord saying, love them, minister to them. I've designed you to be a body. We sit here and say, yeah, no thanks. It's easier to stay home. And we go the solo Christianity route. We go the island Christian. I'm going to read this verse to you out of Isaiah. And this is out of Isaiah 50. It's 10 and 11. I'm reading actually out of the New Living Translation. I like the way this reads. It says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. But watch out. Watch out, you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in great torment. He's saying, watch out, you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires. How often do we do that as Christians? We're hurt, we're lazy, it's too much work, it's too much ministry, it's too much whatever. I'm going to warm myself by my own fire and my own living room, and I'm just going to have church with myself and God. God's designed you to be part of the body of Christ. And part of that is ministering, serving, helping. It is the dirty work of ministry. And I love this about Paul. What's he going to do? He's going to, in verse 23, go back to all the places and strengthen those disciples. The places where he was stoned, the places that he was in prison, the places that he was beaten, the places that he was run out of. He's going to go back into those disciples and say, how can I encourage you in Christ Jesus? And I'm just telling you right now, if you're here this morning and there is a darkness in your life, find the blessing of serving other people. And realizing what a ministry this is. Jesus, before he went to the cross, he washed the disciples' feet. It's a beautiful picture of saying, I will serve in the midst of darkness because I realize I am pointing people towards Jesus Christ. Now, we got our last point here this morning. We're going to finish up talking about Apollos, verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Please note a couple things here. First off, you see Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26, discipling this man. It goes back to our Priscilla and Aquila study from last week. The beautiful example of what marriage looks like, serving together, united together, ministering together, what an absolute blessing that is. But now we need to talk about Apollos. And what I just want to do is I want to go in verse 24, look at the description of this man. Look at the description. First thing you see, verse 24, he's eloquent. Now here's the problem. You know, Renee was just talking with the kids up here about the idea of the fear of public speaking as I stumble over that. Was that not funny? The fear of public speaking. Eloquent here does not mean public speaking. It literally means learned. 
A lot of times we don't say anything because I'm not going to present it right. It's not going to come out right, etc. No, I know the Bible. I know the scriptures. I'm just going to present truth. So this literally means he was eloquent. He was learned. What was he learned in? Mighty in the scriptures, some of your translations, thorough knowledge, well-versed, knowing your Bible. So when somebody brings up a question, you know the answer, you know the scriptures, you've been studying it, you've been praying about it. Second Timothy says we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. We have an understanding of it. That was Apollos. And so was he eloquent? Yes, but it really means he learned it, he knew it, he could present it. And that's what it comes down to. Have you ever seen somebody who is an expert at what they do? And as you watch them, you stop and realize it's just almost masterful what they're doing. I used to work for the village of Ottawa at the water plant and the wastewater plant for a little bit. And every now and then there'd be a big issue that would pop up. Maybe there'd be a water line that would break or something. And they would call kind of all hands on deck, if you will. So we'd all show up. And I remember one time there was a water line issue, so we showed up to see what we can do. And there was a guy there running the backhoe, digging it out, taking care of it. And so now as he's doing this, we're watching him. And it's a very detailed thing you have to do. You've got to be careful what you dig up. You've got to be careful you don't hit other things, break other things, etc. I remember Jason, my brother-in-law, who was working there. I remember him leaning over and he goes, watch him. And this guy with the backhoe is just absolutely amazing. I mean, just little taps, little things here and there. And it's almost like he's doing this fine-tuned surgery around this water main without doing anything. It was absolutely amazing. If any of you have ever been around a backhoe before or messed with it, you know they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. I know if I was in that backhoe, I would have ripped up gas lines, electric lines. Ottawa would not exist as a city anymore because one 20-year-old kid destroyed every line that went through Ottawa. This guy, though, it was masterful. And and I look at that, and I just think that's the way we're supposed to be in the scriptures. Not some pride, not some arrogance, but when somebody brings up, you know, I think think it's okay to have works for salvation. And boom, no, wait a second, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I rightly divide the word of truth. I always use this example a few years ago when the whole push came around, it was Jesus married. Rightly divide the word of scripture. Well, of course Jesus is married to us, the bride of Christ. See, we just know it. Somebody comes up and there's a huge billboard on Route 6 that predicts the day that Jesus Christ is going to return. You rightly divide the word of truth where Jesus said, no man knows the day nor hour. It's just being masterful at the scriptures, not in a prideful, arrogant way, but there's a thorough knowledge, well-versed, mighty in scriptures. And then you take that wisdom, and what do you do with it? Verse 25, you're fervent. You're enthusiastic about it. You're talking to someone and you're just on tippy toes hoping that the Lord comes up. So you can just talk about him. And and you just, the Bible questions come up and you get a chance to talk about the Lord and what he's doing and just what the scriptures say. I go back to what was said earlier. We talk about those things that we love. What happened if we'd had love for God's word? So he was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately. See, I've seen people fervent in spirit, and they're not accurate. I've seen people who are accurate, but they're not fervent. It's great to have both. Have the knowledge, have the wisdom, but have the excitement about it. Apollos had that. And what did he do in verse 26? He did it boldly. Boldly. Literally means without fear. Boldly does not mean you're pushy and does not mean you're a bully. Boldly means that you're not afraid to take the stand when God opens the door. And you're not afraid to see the door crack open and say, you know what, I'm going to boldly come proclaim who Jesus Christ is. Now, I don't mean this to insult anybody because I fall under this category as well. 
It amazes me that Romans 8 says that I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. My Father in heaven is God who created the heavens and the earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm says. He also owns the hills that the cattle's on. I've read Revelation. I know he's going to return. I know what's waiting for me. And I still let the fear of man control what I say and don't say. This is why back in the beginning of Acts, the early church prayed for boldness. A boldness to take a stand and to speak boldly. Apollos had that. And look, he was willing to learn more. Priscilla and Aquila come up to him, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 26, because he only knew the baptism of John. Verse 25, he only knew that John kept saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. So he knew that. He understood that. He was presenting that. But Priscilla and Aquila said, hey, we got to tell you a few more things. Willing to learn. Never get to the point of where you're not willing to learn. I, I absolutely love I Most of the time, I'm the one doing the teaching out here. But we got some other Bible studies going on where I get a chance to show up and just be fed. And I love hearing a different take on a verse. I love hearing what somebody has to say. It's like, I've never thought about it that way before. Just, it's neat to have that. So we got all these great things he's doing. But then verse 27, what else is he willing to do? He greatly helped those who believe through grace. He was willing to come help. And then in verse 28, he vigorously refuted the Jews, powerfully argued back. Don't be afraid to take a stand. And I I just think back to what Paul said, do we fear God or do we fear man? And so often as a believer, we're we're worried about relationships, we're worried about what they're going to think and say, and so we water down eternity, heaven, hell. Because we're afraid to take that stand. I've shared with you before, we got these guys that we've been witnessing to and just spending a lot of time with, and we just absolutely love them. Just absolutely love them. And they're, uh, they're from a, a Hindu persuasion. And so we've been spending time with them over their house, just whatever. And, and the Lord always comes up. Always comes up every time we get together. Something comes up about God and Jesus and salvation. And I've told you before, the questions I always ask him is, where, where are you going? Where are you going? When you die, where are you going? And so we're sitting there on his couch, and so we're talking about, where are you going? He goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to heaven. He goes, well, how are you going to get there? I said, I go through Jesus Christ on the cross for my sins. You know, heaven explained to him the gospel of salvation. He looked at me, he goes, so where am I going? There's a brief moment where you want to water that down. Because there's a brief moment where you look at that guy and as the words are coming out of your mouth, you would be going to hell. Because that's the truth. That's where you would be going. And I look at verse 28, vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. We look at that and if you're a guy, you get excited about that. So I'm allowed to argue with somebody and it's biblical. (laughs) That's kind of fun. Because most of the time you're telling us not to argue. But this is one where I can get out there and take a stand. And maybe my voice can get a little bit louder. And I can, I can do this. Remember, everything done in love, please. But verse 28, you're also realizing these people you're talking to are destined for hell. And I hope that also touches our hearts. To stop and say, I care so much about this person. Where are they going to spend eternity? And I just don't want to hear myself speak because verse 28, vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is Christ. Look at the bookends here of Apollos. The last point we just said, from the scriptures. One of the first points we just said, he was mighty in scriptures. Guys, we got to be in the word. Be in the word. Let's just go through this list one more time for Apollos. 
And let's look at it for ourselves. Are we eloquent? Are we learned? Can we present it truthfully, practically? Are we mighty in scriptures? Are we fervent in spirit? Do we teach it accurately? Are we bold about it? Are we willing to learn more? Are we willing to help people? Are we willing to refute, vigorously refute it publicly? And are we allowed to let the scriptures be the foundation of everything we believe? Paulus is quite the guy. He really is. And when you look at these passages, there's so much in there saying, Lord, that's what we want. That's the church we want to be. That's the individuals we want to be. That's the goal. It's to say, Lord, we want to go out there and live this for you. Worship team, if you can come forward here. I just want to remind you, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Sunrise